Welcome back. You are still listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show, and we are now in overtime. We've got some good stuff for you now that we've gotten rid of those folks on the radio. We are talking to Connor Lewis about strategies for effective unionism. Adam has a sports labor roundup. We're talking about woke anti-worker tweets and more. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started. Connor Lewis is a uh, uh, is a union representative. He is a um, currently on hiatus, I believe, still from the labor journalism collective strike wave, and uh, and and he's here to talk to us about strategies for effective unionism. So, uh, Connor, I appreciate your time tonight, man. Thanks so much. Absolutely, and yeah, the uh, the hiatus will someday end as soon as I get this dissertation finished. But uh, what's the dissertation? Yeah, happy to be here. Oh, it is on uh, Irish working class politics in interwar Ireland. So um, anyone want to talk about you know Irish labor unions from about nineteen twenty one to about nineteen thirty nine? I'm your guy. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. Are you going to turn it into a book? Um. Well, maybe. Honestly, hadn't really thought too much about it. <laughs> right now, I'm just in just trying to get mode, it. so <laughs> we'll see. We'll figure out what to do with it afterward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll have a place to talk on it, uh, uh, talk about it on here at some point, anyways. So let's. I, I wanted to talk to you about um, the the first thing that I want, or, or what I had originally brought you on to talk about was like no strike clauses and and bargaining for power and and. and you you have some really good articles on Substack about no strike clauses and and how they're good, but maybe we or, or not having no strike clauses is good. It is good to get rid of them, but maybe that takes up too much bandwidth in people's mind. But we were uh, we were talking before about open bargaining before before we brought you live, and and I thought that that would be a good thing. As as a as a preface to the conversation about no strike clauses and maybe what you could actually put in the contract, because you know opening bar open bargaining is like the process, and then what actually goes into the contract is is like a different thing, and and I think it makes sense to talk about it in that order. So open bargaining, how is that different from not open bargaining? If we say that open bargaining is like it, it kind of defines itself as something different than the norm, the status quo. What is the status quo for bargaining when unions bargain a uh, a contract to work under? What is the norm and what does open bargaining seek to make better about it? So, I mean, there are a couple of different ways uh, that it would be approached, but... I mean, the common theme that you're going to find in pretty much every union is there's going to be a smaller negotiations team. Um, you know, maybe we're talking like 10, 15 people max. Uh, there's going to be a subset of that that are people that are actually going to the table and they'll negotiate back and forth. The average membership isn't really going to see a lot of the process. They may be surveyed uh, before the uh, bargaining process kicks off. There might be some informational kind of sharing and gathering. Uh, but realistically, like an average bargaining update really doesn't tell you a whole lot more than uh, did we meet? Did we make progress? When are we meeting next? 
Um, it doesn't really tell you that much about what was proposed, what was discussed, uh, what people are kind of in agreement on, where there's, you know, a major sticking point. Um, this is all kind of kept a lot quieter. And the traditional kind of thought process is that you want to keep that information contained. It becomes messy when it gets out there and that you kind of want to keep that a little bit more under wraps. I think one of the things that, um, especially a lot of education unions have really kind of pushed toward is approaching it differently. And some of the reason for this is because there are a couple of states where state statute actually requires open bargaining mm. uh, for um, for education unions. And a lot of that was originally intended as kind of an anti-union attack because the theory was, um, and we should actually distinguish between two types of open bargaining here. There's open bargaining that's like a public meeting that a person off the street can, you know, walk in and watch a bargaining meeting. Um, and then there's also open bargaining where any member of the union can attend as part of the union's team. Um, and I think that even in the more extreme cases of like any person, is, you know, can walk off the street, which is what happened in Denver uh, when they struck a couple of years ago, um, unions have decided to, okay, this is an organizing challenge. Because they see the public as bringing in the public as a weapon against us. But if we organize the public to support us, then that's going to be a weapon against them. And so that's one component of it. But just generally, the idea of bigger bargaining, whether it's every single member is in there or just a much bigger group of people, um, that's been something that uh, and Jane McAlevey has, um, has really kind of gotten into this. Um, but... This is something that a lot of unions like the News Guild, uh, especially, and a lot of education unions are really pushing for. And the idea is basically, look, there's really no good reason uh, to shut your members out. I tell you know, my members when we're talking about putting together bargaining proposals that, look, it, we shouldn't put together a proposal that we're not willing to take to a person, you know, a, person, a parent and drop off hand them a copy of our proposal and say, look, we're willing to answer any questions you have. If we're not at a place where we feel that we can uh, do that, then we've got some more work to do. And so if we're able to do that, then why are we concerned about information getting out? Why are we concerned about, um, you know, opening up bargaining involving more people? And the big thing there is that the more people you have involved, the more power you've got. Um, and I've seen this play out uh play out, you know, live, it really does put, you know, management on the on the defensive. It really shifts the power dynamic in the room and it makes members feel that much more invested in the process, which means that if you have to escalate later, they are much more willing to do so. Because, I mean, if you look at a typical kind of call for a strike, you may have had months of bargaining where members have gotten minimal updates. They really don't know what negotiations have looked like. And then suddenly they get, you know, an email or a notice that, hey, there's a meeting, you need to come to it. And then suddenly they get all of this information dropped on them at mm -hmm. once. And then someone saying, we need to strike. Well, you know, it, it takes some time for them to get there. But if they've been there every step of the way, they're right there along with you. Right. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that recommend it, but I think the biggest thing is it's unions turning more toward we have numbers, we have power, and to use that most effectively, we need to make those members involved in the bargaining process.
Right, right. I remember talking to some of the people on the bargaining committee for the uh, NYU uh, grad union, and they did open bargaining, and they said that they had members that that said basically or, or, or said very similar things to what you're saying, like, "Wow, um, I was so furious at how the administrative uh, the administration was treating us that I was more than willing to go on strike because I saw just how uh, I I saw." more clearly than I had ever before how much disdain they had for, like, working people and the people who made their campus run. Um, So that being the case, why is it that that is not the default? Why why do unions do the more, the the smaller committees um, with less, maybe less substantial bargaining updates? I think a lot of it is just a culture of kind of um, that's how things have been done. And so that's how we're going to keep doing it, Um, which, you know, when you look at some of the less than optimal gains that unions have been able to accomplish through that approach, my kind of thought process is, well, you've only managed to get this through that approach. What do you have to lose from trying something different? Hmm. Um, I think a lot of it is really just a preference for what they view as discipline, but I'll be honest, in my experiences with open bargaining, there's been a greater level of discipline from these bigger groups because you take the time to educate them about what involvement means, why, you know, you have one lead negotiator, why it's important that people, you know, not just speak up in the middle of a bargaining meeting. Um, There's a lot of, you know, I think conflation of a small group of people is being more disciplined, you know, being more controlled, but it's not necessarily. Mm. Um, I think the other part is it is and legitimately it is a little bit messier. You have to wrangle more people. Mm -hmm. um, And I don't mean that pejoratively, but, you know, you've got to you've got to find a common ground for a much larger group of people, um, you know, with maybe not a lot of time to work. And so there's a level of commitment to it that you really have to work through with a very intentional level of, we need to build consensus. We need people unified around our positions. We can't just, you know, shove stuff through. Like we need to organize ourselves too, Mm -hmm. to make sure that we're all behind. This is what our proposal is going to be. Um, and it requires a lot of trust on the part of the members that they can look at the outcome, even an outcome that maybe they would have preferred a different proposal, and look at that and say, I think that this has been done fairly. I'm behind it, even though it's not what I would have picked. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of attention to that kind of organizing and building trust and process that does take a lot of time. And I'll be honest, I think a lot of it is that it does take a lot of time of the activists that are doing it. It takes Mm -hmm. a lot of time for the staff that are doing it and understanding that, you know, we got to figure out a way to do it because we know that there are tools that are available to us that can get bigger gains for working people. And if the only, you know, reason to not do it is, well, it takes a little bit more time or it's a little bit more of a, you know, drain on resources. Well, Help and let's work around those. Mm-hmm. 
Right, right. Yeah, and, and especially if it gets if it gets good results, you know, it would be one thing if if like okay, this is an experiment that we're running, and uh, we ran it a few times, and it didn't really seem seem like it it, it does much. But you know, from obviously, there's not been like a rigorous analysis, you know, by uh, you know by by a research department or anything like that on open bargaining that I'm aware of. But but from I, I've never heard of an instance of open bargaining making it worse than you would have gotten. And isn't there, when you're agreeing to ground rules in bargaining, mm-hmm. isn't there something that management usually tries to get uh, unions to do that explicitly forbids them from going into more detail about bargaining? Or is that maybe just with the media? So it depends, but yeah, um, there usually are, it, it ranges from like a full on kind of gag rule or, you know, ground rules about going public with the media. Um, one of the things that, and unfortunately, I think a lot of unions, rather than fight over ground rules, just kind of go along with it because they don't want to expend that much energy on the front end fighting over something that they feel they can live with. But my thought process and every you know rep I've ever spoken to has been clear. Never agree to ground rules ever. Mm. They're, they're permissive subjects of bargaining. You don't have to agree to them. Mm. And if they continue to keep, if they refuse to meet because you're not agreeing to ground rules, then that's a refusal to bargain. And it's an unfair labor practice. So they can't play that game mm. and they can't decide, you know, who's on your bargaining committee. So, I mean, realistically, if they get upset that you're bringing, you know, 50 people with you, just say, look, they're all members of the bargaining committee. So Mm -hmm. deal with it. So that's the big thing is confidently understanding that when you do this kind of open bargaining approach, those are the kinds of pushback that you immediately get from employers. They want to get bogged down in ground rules or they want to start saying, no, you can't bring that many people. But the oddly enough, there really is no legal leg for them to stand on there, which Mm. is unusual because usually if, you know, bosses want to do something, they can find a legal, you know, argument to make it happen. But they really can't stop you from trying to bargain with, you know, whoever wants to attend from your membership. So, um, but yeah, I mean, just in general, ground rules are never, you know, something that unions should agree to and they're not obligated to agree to them. Mm. Mm. That's pretty. That, that's pretty neat. I didn't realize that uh, that they were that that would be a course of action that a union could take. The filing a ULP for refusal to bargain because ground rules are are you know subject to bargaining. That uh, that that that's pretty. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's one of those things that I feel like a lot of unions don't. I mean, understandably, let's say you've got 60 days, you know, you're negotiating a successor agreement. Do you want to spend two or three weeks fighting over ground rules? A lot of unions decide it's not worth it. But I think that it is worth it, Hmm. especially that first time when you say no. The next time you're not going to have to fight about it, probably. But that first time it's worth it drawing a line in the sand and saying, no, this is not how we're going to do things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, just take the time and, you know, even if it's frustrating. Have you ever seen membership pushback again? Have you ever seen employers utilize membership to push back against a refusal to agree to ground rules? You know, I could imagine maybe a scenario where an employer says, uh, oh, look at how belligerent they're being. They are just, they're 
not even agreeing to ground rules. They obviously don't care about your raises or whatever. Have you ever seen uh, a, a, an attempt to deploy that or a successful successful deployment of, of that? I've seen employers try to play that game, um, trying to portray the union as being confrontational for trying to, um, you know, stand its ground or to negotiate things in a different way than have been negotiated. Um, I've never seen it be successful. And I think that the big thing is, especially with open bargaining, when you to, to members, when you explain it to them as greater transparency, greater buy-in in the process, um, you know, making sure that more people are involved, that makes a sense to them, you know, pretty much immediately. Mm. Um, the only people that you get pushback from are people that have bargained for a long time and then you're telling them to do something different. Mm. But for the average rank and file member, it makes sense. Right. Um, and then, so and when you, you could get see that how it would make the from, you could yeah. see how it would make the boss seem like the bad person for like being scared that right. you will see them uh, in negotiations. Right. Yeah, and I think that that's so. What I tell folks is that look, realistically, they they control what they say, and if they're scared of what they're going to say, then that's a that's a them problem. Hmm. To be honest, we can control what we're going to say, and. I always, you know, tell folks, look, we're never going to be the people to make it negative. We're never going to be the people to, you know, start off pounding our fists on the table. If that's a place we end up going, then that's a place we end up going. But it's not going to be because that's where we went. Hmm. And so that makes it very difficult for management to portray it as the union is being unreasonable or aggressive. We're just not rolling over. We're being reasonable. We're justifying everything. Um, we're just not rolling over, which is really what they're trying to say when they say that the union is being unreasonable. Right. Of course. Of course. So then now we've got, we've got that out of way, out of the way. We've said no ground rules. Screw your ground rules. We've said we're doing open bargaining. Um, and now we are talking about the contract. Um, the, the, the no strike clause has, in in the last couple of years gained like an increased relevancy and it's more of a household um a household name among at least union activists than I think it has been and you've been in in the game uh you know longer than I have so so you can tell me if if this perception is is right but it seems to me like it, there's been more conversation about the no strike clause than there used to be and, you know, I mean, we've had, uh, you know, Sarah Nelson, uh, Cooper Carraway, you know, labor leaders. And, of course, the IWW has always uh, had a ban on no strike clauses in their constitution. And and so, you know, the uh, and, and the, a no strike clause is a no strike, no lockout clause. And it says during the duration of the of the contract, you can't go on strike and we're not going to lock you out. And, and basically the argument from some labor militants is that this is uh, this is just too much. This is too much power to give up, even if you get a no lockout clause uh, saying that you're not going to strike is too much. That's our most powerful weapon, and we have to have it, and we have to be able to wield it any time for any reason that we want, uh, that, that we can get supermajority support for. Um, and, uh, and so, Connor, 
first, just on the no strike clause. I, I mean, what are your thoughts about about that clause being in contracts and and the recent conversation about it and my kind of under understanding of it being a a, a recent or or more rejuvenated conversation in, in the recent past. Yeah, I think I'd agree that it's definitely come up a little bit more over the past couple of years. There have been some articles about no strike clauses and some attention paid to them and some arguments that, you know, no strike clauses are part of the reason that unions don't strike. Um, I think that there's some value in unpacking that a little bit more. Um, No strike clauses effectively, like you said, Uh, And this is a point that's kind of often misinterpreted. They're saying that they won't strike during the duration of the agreement. And most of the time when we think about union strikes, it's during the context of collective bargaining. It's that you're on strike relative to, you know, we're negotiating a new contract and we're on strike for better wages, you know, ending two tier, whatever it may be. That's not the kind of strikes that realistically are being addressed by these. These are really addressing uh, more directly unfair labor practice strikes. And in a couple of legacy contracts, um, strikes are still preserved as a final stage in a grievance procedure. So it's really mostly referring to unfair labor practice strikes or grievance uh, strikes, which really haven't been common for a long, long time. Uh, really dating back to even, I, I would say, the 50s when a lot of no-strike clauses became commonplace, uh, especially following the, the Treaty of Detroit, which I'll definitely come back to. So I think that understanding what they do and don't do is important. And the flip side is, uh, like you mentioned, it also includes a no-lockout clause, which for folks that aren't familiar, a lockout is basically, easy way to think of it is as an employer-initiated strike. They basically say, nope, you can't come to work. We're going to bring in scabs. Um, So that, I think, is important to kind of drill down into is when we're talking about no strike clauses, what are we actually talking about? Um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, no strike clauses and this there's a lot of really complicated case law that we could get into, but probably best not to. No strike clauses are a problem. They're legitimately a problem. Uh, And particularly, I think that you can point to a lot of instances over the past couple of years where there were legitimate health and safety issues that a strike would have been an important weapon to have to deal with emergent, you know, health and safety issues that arbitration procedures, you know, labor board procedures are just not equipped to work at that speed. You can't wait five months for an arbitration award when you're dealing with COVID in your hospital right now. And so I think that's one of the places that really highlighted the some of the restrictions that no strike uh, clauses uh, impose. Though, here's the one flip side to that. Depending on how the no strike clause is written, theoretically, you may still have been able to strike in those circumstances. It gets really complicated with contract interpretation and what it actually means to have a no strike clause. But I do think that, you know, these are legitimate issues that, If I were bargaining a new agreement, I certainly wouldn't advise anyone to um, to agree to one. The problem becomes when we get zeroed in on them is like the thing that needs to change, the thing that's stopping us from a more militant labor movement, the thing that we need to expend all of our energy on, which 
I think is a dead end road for a couple of different reasons. Um, realistically, getting rid of no strike clauses that are part of current contracts requires an enormous amount of member education. Um, it requires members being willing to bargain, you know, with making that, you know, a, a red line issue that we need an agreement without it. And it requires really a massive campaign to pressure an employer to even consider it because stuff like that, along with like management rights clauses are typically understood to be once those things are in your agreement, it's going to take an act of God to get them out. So the question then to me becomes, okay, are there other ways to give us more opportunities to strike? And that's where I think that we need to kind of focus more of our energy is not on the no strike clause, but how do we give ourselves more opportunities to strike? Gotcha. And so what is, why, why do you feel the, um, why is that your approach then to no strike clauses as opposed to, um, open bargaining, let's say, or um, right. or not agreeing to ground rules, you know, because I, I could hear mm -hmm. somebody saying um, that, okay, well, you know, you, you admitted that maybe open bargaining takes a lot of work, but it's worth it and you should do it. Why, you know, why would you look for other things than the no strike clause, e even though, like you said, it's going to take, it would take a lot of work to, um, to get rid of a no strike clause? So I think that one of the things is there are actually, I think, preferable options that are available to us. If we look at the history of when no strike clauses became prevalent, um, that realistically, I think that we need big strikes. We need big strikes that have, you know, that shut down a plant. And we need those strikes to be centered around increasing, um, increasing standards for working folks. We need strikes built around um, demands for increased wages. We need economic strikes. Technically, they're always, almost always unfair labor practice strikes to make sure that there are protections, but we need those strikes over raising standards. And I don't think that necessarily focusing on grievance strikes or ULP strikes are necessarily where we want to focus our energies. And we have a tool that's available to us that's much easier to control that can deliver those opportunities for big economic strikes. And this gets back to, I said I was going to go back to the Treaty of Detroit, which is one of the places where no strike clauses became really prevalent, along with uh, the UAW basically throwing labor on, under the bus on conceding rights of management. The big thing that UAW um, conceded and the thing that the automakers really wanted more than anything else was a five-year contract. And the reason they wanted that is because they wanted labor peace. And prior to that, contracts were typically one to two years. You would annually have strikes over agreements. Um, and this was just something that was institutionalized. People struck annually at the expiration of the agreement. And this is the point where the UAW and other industrial unions, especially, were driving up standards significantly in the post-war era. And it's because they had institutionalized this kind of militancy and tied it directly to, we are bargaining over your wages, your benefits, and the strike weapon is just one of the things that we do. 
and there was that buy-in and it was part of the labor culture. Five years is a long time. Mm. And there are no interruptions uh, in, you know, in production. Um, and it, it, it allows that time for people to get complacent for that culture of like striking to kind of wither and trying to like rev up people for a strike after a five-year agreement is like trying to start a car engine when it's like 20 below. It's not an easy task. And so the thing that labor has lost sight of is that the five-year agreement was originally a huge concession. Mm. Now, a lot of unions, especially ones that are bargaining healthcare, almost want that five-year agreement because their mentality is that we're just trying to lock things in and hold the line against losing. Mm. They've lost that idea that we can go on the offensive. They've lost the idea of, you know, thinking about ways to expand, um, to expand benefits, to expand rights. And realistically, I think that a big part of that is to dramatically shorten the length of contracts. And realistically, I think that we have far more control over that in negotiations than we do over a no-strike clause. So, I mean, if we agree to a one-year agreement, we agree to a two-year agreement, then that starts turning around the lack of strikes, the lack of institutional culture of militancy, because then striking just becomes part of negotiations and negotiations happen much more frequently. Mm. And the other part is it keeps members more militant because, again, you don't have that cooling off period. So you have, even in the one to two years, all of those fights over contract implementation, over grievances. It allows you to keep that pressure on employers much, much more effectively than if you agree to a five-year deal. And then it's a struggle to keep things, you know, um, keep folks engaged and to keep things going. So I really do think that length of contract is one of the keys here that folks need to focus on. And this definitely is not a shortcut of any way, really, so much as a strategic kind of alteration, because, I mean, to be honest, Tackling length of contracts offers more opportunities and it also takes more work because keeping, you know, a local bargaining that frequently, that's a lot of work from mm. members. It's a lot of work from staff. But I think that the potential payoff is way, one, I think it's actually more achievable, even though it has more work involved. And two, I think it, it promises to pay off a lot more. Right. Especially if you're looking at my local, for instance, has like 29 different contracts that uh, that we administer. So, you know, like 29 different right. 29 different contracts, uh, um, you know, being bargained every year, every other year. Uh, that, that would be that yeah. would definitely be a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is where I get to get on my industrial union soapbox. Thanks. I got teed, teed it right up for me. Labor. And this is a huge problem. Labor has, in an attempt to just keep organizing, started aiming for the smallest possible bargaining unit they can just get over the finish line. And like the average unit size, and I mean, there are other things as well, the average firm size, like you don't have like the River Rouge uh, mm. plant anymore that was like massive. But I mean, there definitely are ways to organize more and to organize bigger than we're organizing right now to, you know, take 
three hospitals in the same, you know, chain instead of, you know, one contract, make it a master contract, mm -hmm. things like that. Right, right. Taking industrial unionism is the answer here. Yeah. And yeah, because I mean, if you've got, if you've got 30, if you've got 30 bargaining units that are all a couple dozen people, where's your leverage there? Mm. Where's your capacity to be able to actually bargain those effectively? Well, I mean, I that's will say in defense of small of, little fights. I will say in defense yeah. of my local, we represent 11,000 workers. So there are that is fair. Our, that our, is fair, our bargaining yeah. units are not dozens of people. Uh, but right. point point uh, point I'm speaking from some I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm speaking a little bit more from my experience where I do have bargaining units of dozens of people. Yeah, so that that would be um, absurd to bargain a contract yeah. for like 12 or 24 people that seems um especially if there's more people right. that 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 can be bargained over. So okay then what what do you how would you retort to an employee who maybe management has talked to that says um I don't want to strike every year. That sounds terrible. No no thank you. Get me good benefits for 5 years, please. Um mm. what would you say to that? So what are the benefits that you're going to be able to get? I think there are a couple of different things to raise. One, when you're bargaining over health care, realistically, you're not talking about good benefits over five years. You're talking about benefits that don't get worse. And I think that's a, that's a shift that we need to get folks thinking about because the, the common consensus is healthcare doesn't really do anything but get worse. There's no reason that has to be the case. And so I think that pointing out that, look, if we keep doing things the way that we're doing it, the best you can accomplish is you're going to maybe keep your health insurance the way it is right now for the next five years. Does that, is that enough? If you're paying 50 bucks, you know, out of pocket for a copay, is that enough to keep it at 50 bucks? Or would you prefer to pay 25 or to prefer to pay 15? We're never going to fix it unless we change something about how we're approaching this. And so I think that gets into that whole, you know, question of raising people's expectations about what they should want, that they should want more than just, you know, keeping things from getting worse. I think the other part of it is that Look, emphasizing to people, we're no union, no union of which I'm aware will walk away from the right deal and go on strike, even though they have a fair settlement staring them in the face. Mm. They always and the best unions go into negotiations prepared for the eventuality that they're going to strike. But if the right deal is on the table, nobody is going to walk away from that. Right. And so ultimately... If they strike, that just tells you what your employer thinks of you, what your employer is willing to give you. And that's not something that, of course, anyone wants to do, but that's something where I think it's important to lay the blame on the people that are ultimately responsible, which is your employer won't give you a fair deal. Mm. Now, there's still going to be folks that that's just not going to be enough for them. But I do think that's where it comes back to open bargaining. When those folks actually see with their own eyes what management says at the bargaining table, that is an eye-opening experience. And that's an eye-opening experience that every single union member should have. Right, right. 
Yeah, here, here. Well, so what what are some uh, some other things that um, that folks should be bargaining for in their contracts along with shorter contract periods? So I think that, and this is going to differ depending on the workplace, but here's one of the things that unions don't think enough about. And part of it is because there isn't really so much an overall kind of political analysis or power analysis or even commitment to kind of building power um, more generally. Contracts are basically codifying a set of power relationships kind of frozen in time and in time and kind of the, the goal of bargaining is to get yourself into the best position before those power relationships kind of freeze into the agreement. That doesn't mean that they don't kind of shift and are contested throughout the duration of the agreement, but it's a war of position and thinking bigger picture about what can we tackle that will make us more powerful, will give us greater rights um, will make it more possible next time to accomplish more. And there are a lot of different things that I think could play into that. One of the things that, again, it's one of those things that's very difficult to get out, but I think that uh, it should be in the conversation just alongside, um, just alongside um, talking about uh, no strike clauses is management rights. More than no strike clauses, more than anything else, Management rights and the UAW conceding those in 1955 was one of the biggest strategic errors that organized labor has ever made. Because we shouldn't concede that there is such a thing as management rights. Every right the management has is a stolen right from workers. So realistically, like that is one of the key things that we should be zeroed in on is just chipping away and chipping away and chipping away at management rights and the idea, whether it's in a management rights clause or if it's even just kind of implicit in some other language that, I mean, the contract is for the workers. The contract is for the workers. It's not there to protect management management rights. It's not there to give anything to management. That is there for the workers. The other thing that I think is really just a general area that's important to kind of more aggressively wade in on is hiring. Mm. And this is an area where management loses their minds the second that you start wading in on hiring. But this is one of the key things that is really something that workers need to have more control over is who's getting hired into the shop. And particularly a lot of unions that are addressing discriminatory hiring practices, that's something you got to bargain over that management is just not going to concede on that right unless you push them to. Um, and I know that this is something, and I can't remember the exact provisions that they were uh, going after. I think that there were some diversity requirements, but uh, the News Guild particularly really fought hard over uh, some provisions uh, with hiring and actually won against uh, Condé Nast, mm -hmm. which, I mean, they were going up against a massive corporation and still won on some of the core rights of management. The management will, you know, die on the hill of defending those. And a lot of it is because they did open bargaining and they had credible strike threats. So... I think that these are all things just big picture. You need to think about the power relationship between labor and management, and you've got to figure out, okay, yes, we short-term want to get rid of two-tier. We short-term want to increase our pension you know, contribution, but we can't 
ignore the bigger picture. We can't ignore where we're going to be in the next contract. And you can't just focus purely on the bread and butter and not look at what's going to put us into a position to ask for more next time. And that's when you have to start getting into looking at those power things. Right, right. Yeah, I I remember that, um, that, that they were able to get uh, some, I, I believe... Maybe it was uh, maybe it was not the Condé Nast one, but there was one the GMG group, um, the the, mm. the Gizmodo group. They re- they got um, included that forty percent of people, or maybe fifty or sixty percent, a certain percent of people at the hiring stage or at the interview stage would be from you know X group or something mm. like that. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that's all. Yeah, that that's. That that's that I totally agree. Yeah, and I was going to jump in here because I, you're you're really speaking some truth here, um, and I was taking notes honestly because I, I really loved a lot of what you said. Um, I think looking at hiring and management rights are, are two of the biggies that all unions should be looking at. Um, yeah, and Jacob, you mentioned the Gizmodo workers. That was important uh, to see that in that industry, but I'd love to see it spread to other industries because there are, you know, bad hiring practices across the economy. Uh, We see bias and discrimination. We also see how, you know, you and I are both education background, and uh, we see how teachers and other educators are deprofessionalized and how, you know, standards are continually lowered to enter the profession while at the same time, you know, the same folks doing that are demanding more accountability. Um, so those are all issues that I think are, are are worth pursuing and bargaining. But there were a couple other things I just wanted to highlight, you know, kind of reflecting on some things you said. And the one that resonated the most maybe was, you know, the raising of expectations beyond just things not getting worse. And, and I think so many of us, uh, across the working class and, and, you know, specifically many of our unions have gotten into that rut, basically, of that's the best we can do is just make sure it doesn't get worse. Just try to manage a status quo that is, mm-hmm. we hope, not going to de- decline or deteriorate even more. Uh, and, and we can, you know, you're talking big picture here, and I think that's the way to look at it if we look at it big picture wages in this country peaked what around 1973 or so uh, mm-hmm. about 50 years of decline we've been seeing so obviously that strategy is not working very well not on any big scale um, I, I know it may be working for some unions and some locals but across the economy it's definitely not working for us this idea of just just try to hold on to what we have uh, and, and we see that as a reflection of power, and that's what I, you know. I really like what your your emphasis on the power relationship because, and here's another thing uh, you know I jotted down was the contract is sort of a snapshot of the power relations at the time between the union and the boss, wherever that may be, and I, I think more folks in the labor movement have to look at that big picture and look at power where does it come from who has it how much do we have versus how much do they have and how do we change that and that should be in in the foreground of 
every not just every bargaining session, but really what we do uh, and how we operate. Uh, and uh, another, you know, I'll, I'll leave it with this. One last thing you mentioned uh, in terms of open bargaining and some of the benefits there. And I think that is so true. If you as a worker, if you've never had the opportunity to sit down in person and hear what your employers have to say about you uh, and what their attorneys have to say about you. It can be a, a life-changing experience. It can really um, give you a new perspective on your job and the people who uh, you know manage you, the people who sign your paychecks. And I think that's something that not just every union member, but every worker deserves. And, you know, I know there are folks listening who do not currently belong to a union or, or maybe uh, don't even see themselves having that opportunity yet. And that this is a good opportunity for us to plug why unions are good, <laughs> uh, because you can actually yep. have that opportunity to democratically uh, organize, to get people together as a group to go into your employer's office and sit down and hammer out a contract that's going to govern your not just your your pay and benefits, but your working conditions. And hopefully soon, you know, your hiring practices and other issues in, on the job. And that is an opportunity that, you know, about 90 percent of the workers in this country currently do not have. And and so I know sometimes on the show and, and you know, the three of us, we have uh, some critiques of the labor movement as it stands today. Uh, and I think that's important. We have to we have to have critique. That's how we get better. Uh, but it's also a good time to reflect on how. You know, even even in the areas where labor needs to improve drastically, it's still uh, night and day compared to what so many of our working class brothers and sisters are out here facing without the protections of a union, without the opportunities to organize inside of a union. So keep it up, Connor. I, I love the big yeah. picture analysis and the focus on power relations. That's what we need more of in this movement. Yeah. And, you know, I will say I will end on like a note of maybe optimism. I think that one of the things that's been most encouraging to me over the past couple of years and really dating, I think, back to the West Virginia strikes, which I mean, that was and this is probably not appreciated nearly enough. That was not a teacher strike. That was an education worker strike. Mm -hmm. That was an industrial strike. Um, and I think that more and more you've seen a lot of support staff unions and, you know, professional staff unions tying their, you know, strikes together in a way that just has not ever been a norm. Um, like in Minneapolis right now, both support staff and professionals are on strike. In Sacramento, um, both support staff and professionals are on strike. In, in two different unions, the, the teachers are NEA and the uh, support staff are SEIU. And you've seen that kind of like understanding that one, we got to, we have a common cause and two, that we are so much more powerful together. And it's those kinds of fights that we need because it's not, you know, the little strike here, the little strike there. It's how do you bring more people into struggle with the boss, with the boss class? How do you bring people into big fights with the boss class? And I got to say that, you know, there is a lot of signs that unions and union activists and union leaders are getting it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. It seems like there is a new energy 
Um, you know, I don't know how much of that's just a reflection of our material conditions around us and how much of it is, um, you know, a new generation of activists and organizers such as yourself. But I, I think it's uh, it is an optimistic time, I think, for those of us who care about the labor movement, who want to see it grow. Um, you know, as as daunting as the numbers look every year when they come out, um, you set that aside for a sec and take a look at the energy and, and mm. phenomena like you're mentioning, the solidarity between certificated, you know, college-educated uh, professional workers with the more blue-collar workers or pink-collar workers, however you want to call them, seeing that sort of uh, joining together realization of their collective strength i think that is a pathway forward and you know that's that's what we want to see more of yeah i, I mean the, t- the the teamsters sent full-time staffers for like a month or two to support the rwdsu campaign and you could see and and in a certain lens you could see the teamsters and rwdsu as in competition for organizing um for organizing Amazon, but um, but instead they're cooperating to organize Amazon, and that's you know I don't know that's pretty cool I think. Yeah, for sure. So, Connor, thank you so much for your time. Definitely going to get you back on. Uh, looking forward to talking to you again sometime. Yeah, let's talk about Irish politics. Someday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, you're going to have to book off a lot of time for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Connor. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, thanks. All right. So Adam has created a sports labor roundup for us this week. Uh, so Adam, talk to us about what's been going on in the last little bit with the sports balls. Sure. Uh, I, I guess to since this is the first time we're doing the segment, I, I'll give a little bit of introduction here. Uh, I know that I can't be the only person who's really into unions who's also a sports fan. I know that person is not Jacob, but uh, <laughs> but I'm one of those people. Uh, you know, I was I played sports when I was young. I was always uh, short and scrawny and slow. So, uh, oh, and uncoordinated. Not a great combination to be an athlete. Uh, I had plenty of heart, but uh, that'll only take you so far. But uh, in addition to, you know, playing sports like many folks, uh, especially here in the South, I grew up watching sports, big football fan, uh, New Orleans Saints fan and uh, college football, of course, Atlanta Braves. Uh, You know, I was always into basketball. I remember the Jordan years. Uh, In fact, that's one of my early memories of the first house I ever lived in was watching Michael Jordan and the iconic Bulls team take down Carl Malone in the Utah Jazz. So I have a lot of fond memories of sports, and um, it's one of you know the connections I still have to my native Mississippi, where I'm from. And I also remember labor coming up in the sports conversation. I think I've mentioned on the show before that, uh, you know, really until the last few years. I recall hearing about unions and strikes and collective bargaining agreements more from ESPN than CNN um, in the context of professional athletes who are all unionized and some of the disputes they would have with the owners who are mostly billionaires. So 
that's something that also has resonated with me, and I just got the idea that maybe we should talk a little bit about sports from the labor perspective. And, you know, I know that's not new. There are, there are some really great folks out here doing that kind of work already. But I wanted to just uh, touch touch on a few of the major issues that have happened in sports over the past month or so. And uh, if you guys are interested and if you want to hear more, uh, be happy to do this, you know, every month and just kind of take a look at sports, but from a labor unionist perspective and not just a uh, typical fan perspective or uh, oftentimes, what we get from sports media is very much from the owner's perspective uh, or from the league perspective. And that's not what we're about on this show. We're about the people. We're about the workers who actually create the wealth, not the bosses, not the profits. So on that note, uh, I think we should start with baseball. Uh, Jacob mentioned baseball from Jonah Furman's update, who gets the bird. And by now you know that the Players Union has agreed with the Major League Baseball League, uh, and the lockout has ended. So I wanted to point to a great article by Dave Zirin. He is the sports editor of The Nation. He also has the Edge of Sports podcast. He's written quite a bit of books about these kinds of issues um, but he had a great article, Baseball is Back, and a couple of things that he mentioned in there that stood out to me, some of, it's, some of this we actually covered previously on the show. We did do some analysis of the profits of these teams and the salaries of these players. Uh, so if you missed that, check it out on YouTube or Spotify, wherever you find us. Uh, Jacob pulled some charts. We also had some help from our friends at The Means Morning News, who did a great segment on this. But baseball is back. But that's really no thanks to the owners. Uh, the union had to fight incredibly hard uh, to end this lockout. It lasted, if I'm not mistaken, 99 days the lockout lasted. Uh, and, of course, contract negotiations would have started even well before then. So we're talking about, you know, quite a lengthy process that the league and its owners were really refusing to bargain in good faith. Um, and I think that has been widely recognized, even in sports media. And that's something that I've been pleasantly surprised about is that um, – it seems like most folks kind of knew who the good guys and the bad guys were in this situation. And it was easy because the billionaire owners made it easy in this case. But sometimes that, that's a lot harder uh, to parse out uh, because folks hear about some massive salaries. You know, you hear about big time athletes like LeBron James or Tom Brady who command these massive contracts and they command uh, advertising deals they start their own companies, but the truth is that is not the average athlete's experience. And in fact, uh, there are, regardless of what you know, sports you're talking about or what league you're talking about, um, the athletes tend to have short careers and make far, far below the, you know, big time numbers that tend to grab the attention. So back to back to baseball, 
Baseball is back. A couple of the highlights. Uh, the median salary, which has decreased over the past seven years, 33%. Hopefully that's going to be changing now. They did increase the minimum salary by 23%. Uh, but one thing that they did not secure in this contract that I know they were fighting for was a wage or a salary floor for the team as a whole. In other words, a certain threshold that every baseball club would have to spend on their salaries. And the reason why that's relevant, the reason why the players were advocating for this is because you have, I mean, if you're a fan, you know this, you have numerous teams, particularly in baseball, that tank every year. They intentionally lose. Uh, for multiple reasons. Sometimes it's strategic. They think, hey, if we lose now and we lose next year, you know, in a couple years, we'll have enough draft picks. We'll have enough money in the bank. We can, you know, go, go all in and, and that's when we'll recover. Uh, you know, occasionally that works, but more often than not, you have teams who are just saving money on salaries while still raking in big bucks. And the fans get a pretty crappy experience because their teams are always losing. Nobody wants to go see a team that sucks. Um, but there are plenty of owners in baseball who intentionally make it the case, uh, but still want to charge outrageous prices to get into the games. And a lot of fans have been priced out of, you know, not just baseball, but all sporting events. And it's that all leads me to a certain senator from Vermont, Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with a little bit of his backstory, it was actually seeing the Brooklyn Dodgers pulled out from his community that got him into politics in a lot of ways. That really helped him understand the, the ways in which corporate power can affect communities. So he's always kind of had this thing about baseball and uh, now I'm pretty sure Major League Baseball uh, is not too happy about this because he has actually proposed legislation called the Save American Baseball Act. And what this legislation would do is uh, remove the exemptions that MLB has under the Sherman Antitrust Act. Sherman Antitrust Act, it's over 100 years old. It was part of the trust busting uh, when you know the progressive movement was able to push and push to the where the federal government would actually break up some of these monopolies, uh, you can look around and see that they haven't done a very good job of that as of late or the last few decades. Uh, but it's there, but not for Major League Baseball. MLB actually has uh, special exemptions from this trust busting act. Uh, and not even other professional leagues have this degree of exemption. So it sets up a monopoly that the Major League Baseball and its owners have over professional baseball. And, you know, of course, they're all capitalists, but uh, they don't necessarily love competition. So Bernie has put this act out. So far, he's the only sponsor, at least, uh, you know, as of the time I was researching this. But we'll see if it gains traction because, uh, you know, this could really shake things up. This could shake things up in terms of the power of the players to bargain. Uh, because, like, right now, if 
if someone tried to start a, another professional league to rival MLB, you know, the players who got involved could be blacklisted, the coaches, everyone involved. Uh, I mean, it would be near impossible to get off the ground. Even without the, you know, protections MLB enjoys, it still would be difficult, but it certainly could shake things up. Uh, and when the agreement was signed between the union and the league, here's what Senator Sanders had to say. These are baseball oligarchs who negotiated in bad faith for more than 100 days in a blatant attempt to break the players' union. These are baseball oligarchs who, over the last year, eliminated their affiliation with over 40 minor league teams, not only causing needless economic pain and suffering, but also breaking the hearts of fans in small and mid-sized towns all over America. It would not surprise you to learn that Burlington, Vermont, was one of those cities and towns that uh, had their minor league baseball team taken away. So, again, obviously, it's quite personal for Senator Sanders, and I really applaud him for taking this stand. Moving on to football, uh, even though it's March, football always seems to dominate the sports headlines. And I wanted to point out that about a month or so ago, Brian Flores was hired as a defensive coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Mike Tomlin, is one of the only African-American coaches we've had in the NFL in a little while, uh, or who was at the time was still, he was the only one. Uh, I believe there have been some new hires recently, but the reason that's important is because Flores was fired as the head coach of the Miami Dolphins uh, after this past season, despite having a you know, decent enough record. Um, there were certainly plenty of coaches who, who would have earned a firing well before him. And he felt it was BS, as many of us did. So he filed a lawsuit. And he is pursuing it as a class action discrimination lawsuit. And that's something that, you know, so MLB is looking at being shaken up by Congress uh, this lawsuit could really shake things up in the NFL. And, you know, a couple of things that he pointed out in his discrimination suit is that you have 32 owners of these teams, most of them billionaires. None of them are black. But 70% of the NFL players are black. Uh, there is a massive disparity in who is playing versus who is coaching, owning, managing these teams. Uh, and so you have folks who are profiting off of the labor of a majority black workforce. Doesn't reflect the diversity of their workforce. Um, now, personally, my opinion would be uh, much better if these teams were publicly owned uh, by the people, by the communities in which they rest. As it is, they are by and large privately owned but publicly subsidized uh, because in case after case after case, these teams managed to get cities to build new stadiums for them and to write them these massive subsidies and tax incentives to stay in a city. Um, but all that aside, it's clear that there is a issue with racism and discrimination and bias inside National Football League. And uh, my hat's off to Brian Flores for being willing to take a stand because he's acknowledged that this may this may mean he never gets to be a head coach ever again. Um, so 
I applaud him. Good for good for Flores for taking a stand. We'll see, you know, what develops out of that. But it's hard. It's hard not to see how obvious this is uh, in terms of coaching and in terms of who actually is making the big bucks in upper management of these teams while these guys are out here putting their bodies on the line, shortening their lifespans. Uh, and just like in baseball, the average player is having a very short career, much, much lower salaries than what you know a Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers can command. And uh, on that note, sticking with football, uh, I do want to mention Deshaun Watson, former head uh, former football player for the Houston Texans. He was a you know outstanding quarterback, very well regarded. Uh, you may know that he has not been playing for the past year or so. He is facing 22 allegations of sexual assault and misconduct. He's got quite the laundry list of lawsuits facing him. But it was just announced today that a second grand jury has declined to press charges on him. Um, a few days ago was the first time a grand jury declined. And so that was sort of a taken as an opportunity by the league to rehabilitate him, to get him back into the game and, you know, teams. And even my my love my beloved New Orleans Saints went after him to try to get him. So Cleveland Browns have given him a contract guaranteeing $230 million. Uh, it's a pretty massive contract, even for a quarterback in the NFL. Now, like any good unionist, I believe in due process. He has not been charged with any crimes. He's not been convicted of any crimes. Uh, and so, you know, I I would like to see due process for Mr. Watson. He deserves it just like we all do. Uh, certainly want to see justice for all of the alleged victims. But the only reason I bring it up is because it's it's hard to process that, you know, here we have a guy who, you know, best case scenario is coming with a lot of baggage. He's getting a record contract, and yet Colin Kaepernick is still at home. Can't get a contract. Can't even hardly get a workout. And, you know, Kaepernick, before anyone says anything, is not as good as Deshaun Watson. There's no dispute about that. You know, no one would say that he's the better quarterback, but he's damn sure better than plenty of the quarterbacks who have contracts and who have even started games over the past five years. So, shout out to, to Colin Kaepernick. Uh, it's BS that you're still at home. I hate that you're not getting a contract, but uh, hopefully that'll change. Um, you know, again, it, it's hard to justify that you've got a guy with 22 allegations out there, and somehow that's acceptable baggage to not only get a contract, but to get a record contract. But yet Colin Kaepernick, because of his protest and, and the protest that really he helped kick off inside the football league and, and the issues of racism he pointed to inside football, but also inside of our broader society uh, and with policing in particular, you know, oh, he's too controversial. He can't even he can't even get, you know, a spot on the bench. All right. Uh, last thing I'll say is a uh, shout out to the women's soccer team. The National Women's Soccer Union actually won a historic contract last month. 
And now the union's only been around since 2017. They organized uh, in the face of some pretty terrible conditions. I was not aware of this until researching this. Uh, and, you know, I saw the news for the contract, but it wasn't until just recently I realized that before this contract, these women for the National Women's Soccer League had a starting salary of $22,000. Woo! $22,000. Um, and so <laughs> one of the campaign, you know, associated with their contract campaign was a hashtag, no more side hustles. Because as you can imagine, at $22,000, uh, most of these women were having to take on second and third jobs as professional athletes. That's quite difficult to do, to manage your schedule. You're, you're traveling. Uh, you have a very demanding workout schedule, and you're still having to have side hustles just to make your rent. It's, it's astounding. Uh, so the National Women's Soccer Union has been bargaining since 2020. And like I said, just last month, they were able to secure this historic contract uh, including a 160% increase in the minimum salary. So they did get it up to, let's see, 35000 Still pretty low. Still pretty low, but uh, that's a pretty dramatic increase. So shout out to the women of the soccer league who've done this. Um, it will be, come as no surprise that it took a credible strike threat to get their win. They told, tend to get results. Right. They they made it clear they were prepared to stop work, that they were prepared not to show up to training camp. And lo and behold, the Board of Governors was able to finally, after nearly two years of negotiation, sign a contract. So uh, all that said, professional athletes are workers. They sell their labor in exchange for a salary. Many of them are much highly, much more highly compensated than any of us on this show or listening to this show, uh, but they are workers nonetheless. And so it, whenever there is a dispute between workers and management, we know what side we're on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there was a report that came out last week showing that 40% of Alabama workers are making less than $15 an hour. That is wild. 40% of Alabama workers, that is uh, 45 out of 52 states and territories. Um, love it. 61% of Hispanic workers, which puts us at 47 out of 52 states and territories, and 58% of black workers make less than $15 an hour. Uh, raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour would benefit almost 1 million workers in Alabama. Like, directly. That's not to, that's not to say, um, anything for the people that would be indirectly benefit, that would indirectly benefit from the minimum wage being raised, um, because their, the salary for would have increased. So they'll get raises as well. Um, and, Man, the minimum wage is really, as a topic of discussion, has really kind of... I think it's it's insane because everybody, uh, like, most working people support raising the minimum wage from $7 an hour, which is, I mean, 
Seven dollars an hour. Seven twenty-five. That's I think it's how long it's, it's been since oh nine. Two thousand nine. Yeah, that was the yeah. last time. You know, like everybody supports it, but for some reason, the people who run our country uh, do not. And so, like, we just don't talk about that anymore. And so, somehow, like, sometimes I do legitimately forget that. Oh yeah, like there are actually people that only make seven dollars an hour in this country still less um, than that as a tipped wage yes yeah and we'll talk about that in the next segment right uh, <laughs> but, right but uh, uh you I'm, know the, the thing about alabama and i'm sorry if i'm still in your thunder here but alabama made it illegal for cities to raise the minimum wage it did and if you cut back a few years ago, I was involved with the Raise the Wage Huntsville campaign, and we had Raise the Wage campaigns in Tuscaloosa and Mobile, Birmingham, uh, really all the major metros in the state. And there were a lot of great people working on these, um, and we were making progress in a lot of areas, building a coalition. And, you know, it, it felt like just as soon as we were making progress and got momentum, the state legislature intervened. Uh, you know, Birmingham passed a local minimum wage increase to ten ten an hour, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it was like as soon as our movement was successful in one area, boom, that's all it took for the legislature to stamp that out. Uh, and oddly enough, then I was involved with the monument removal campaign, and the legislature did the same thing there. Uh, to prevent cities and counties and other jurisdictions from removing Confederate monuments. Uh, So, you know, again, this is a common theme on here with Alabama politics, but they love to talk about small government in Montgomery. But anytime you actually try, they are happy to use the power of the state against cities and counties. Oh, yeah. If you dare try to help people... um, that's all it will take. So, and by the way, uh, for anyone keeping score, our illustrious mayor of Huntsville, tear gas Tommy, he was not a fan of raising the minimum wage. Oh, no, of course not. Now, at the time, that came as quite a shock to a few folks in, in the community, but... Um, I don't think it would be as shocking now. Probably not. No, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's he's shown his true colors more yeah. than once in in the years since that campaign. I mean, the law isn't the law isn't the only way to raise the wage for raise wages for working people. And we talk about the other way to do that. You know, that's the whole show, right? But uh, but politicians stand in the way of working people organizing as well. Um, you know, so uh, it, it's it's a tough row to hoe whichever way you go, for sure. Um, whether you try to raise the minimum wage or whether you try to organize a union, uh, you're going to have stiff opposition. And, um, you know. It, right. And I think now looking back on it, um, what I wish that we had done, those of us who were in the Raise the Wage uh, movement, is just keep pushing and not let the state legislature, you know, deflate us like they did. Uh, because I think, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but maybe if we had kept building this coalition, we could have gained ground in other ways, whether that's, you know, reversing the law or um, 
getting cities to disobey the law or maybe most importantly actually helping leveraging that into organizing in workplaces right. uh, and building unions that secure those wages as opposed to governments. Yeah, uh, I mean, the places that people always talk, uh, always point to with the highest minimum wages, like Norway and Denmark and, and you know, all, all these places that the minimum wage is like $22 an hour, they don't actually have a, like, a legal a law that has a minimum wage. It's it, but But the unions are so powerful that literally nobody in the country makes less than the equivalent of $22 an hour. Um, so the uh, And guess what? You can still afford uh, Big Macs. Yeah, yeah, Big Macs. Uh, Cuz I know that's that's like... that's the thing that we're supposed to believe that if uh, we don't have a, you know, 896,000 mm-hmm. desperate workers in Alabama working at poverty wages, starvation wages that uh, the rest of you right. won't be able to get your treats. Right, right. Yeah, I, uh, you weren't here for this, I don't think, but we had uh, Stephen Robbins on. He's an immigration attorney talking about immigration one day, and, and we had a caller. I remember that, yeah. actually. Yeah, I think I, maybe I was hanging out in the studio okay. with you and David at the time. But Yeah, uh, we had a caller say something about, like, mm, maybe they shouldn't be deported, but uh, what if the lettuce price increases <laughs> and it's like um oh no 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 bananas. no maybe it was, was it bananas the bananas and it was something like like oh well but if you give them more rights and they get paid more then what's going to happen to the price of it? and it's like okay so for i mean for one like if that happens like that happens like we should we'll be all right we'll be all right right yeah. like if you know if, if if the price of cheap lettuce is that people have to be slaves basically then maybe i just shouldn't have cheap lettuce maybe that just shouldn't be a thing that we have in the country right like if that's what it takes but uh, on the other hand like there's no evidence that that's what would actually happen. yeah i mean but it is a it's it's an interesting thing that you brought up because it does force us to think about the the products that we consume the services that we consume and how much around us in our life, both necessities and luxuries, only exist because there are people being super exploited at starvation wages, are in dangerous conditions, are at the threat of deportation, are in many cases all of those and more. Uh, and and that's, that's not something that people like to think about, mm-hmm. uh, but it's something that we have to think about if we're going to address it if we're going to change this, or and certainly if we're going to build a better future that doesn't rely on that. Yeah. Speaking of the minimum wage, though, you mentioned that the tipped minimum wage is less than the regular minimum wage. So the tipped minimum wage in Alabama is $2.13 an hour. I am intimately aware of the tipped minimum wage because I worked under the tipped minimum wage for three years, and uh, during that time, I was promoted to um, server manager, which was not really a management position. It was like I got to do everything that a manager does except for having hiring and firing power, and I also had to close a restaurant at 2 in the morning. (laughs) So all the duties, but none of the authority. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But... I didn't tell you what I got in return. I got 
a sweet, sweet five dollars an hour for oh. all of that extra there you go. work. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was. <laughs> I was a manager at a restaurant for $5 an hour. Um, but the reason that we did that is because like, they gave us two options, basically, and they said, that, okay, you can either just be... And it was all like there were, there, were, there were different hourly rates for different positions, right? So you didn't, as an individual, make X amount of money. You made however much that you made for the position that you were working that shift. So... Whenever it was my shift, whenever it was a shift that I needed to server manage, I had the option of either making $5 an hour and waiting tables and, and waiting tables on top of everything else that I had to do to make the restaurant one run, or I could forego my tables and make $12 an hour. Um, and I made more money taking $5 an hour and waiting tables on top of everything else. So that's what I ended up doing. Um, but anyway, all of this to say, uh, like if you go to a restaurant where you're being served, uh, you got a tip. You got a tip. Uh, it's not an option. Okay. It's not an option. You have to tip and you have to tip 20% at least. Um, because if you don't, you're basically saying like, Oh, they deserve a pay cut or something. And that's just not how, uh, that's not how jobs work in the country. Like you can be disciplined, but to say that, okay, your punishment for, um, you know, for, for, for not doing work this, uh, not doing work as good today is that, you know, you don't get money for dinner or you're not going to be able to make rent or something, you know, like that's just not, it's not appropriate. And we can obviously talk about, you know, the, the, the origins of tipping and how it's like racist and how it's, it's like not good. And we should not have a culture of mandatory tipping and, and, uh, we should definitely be like more upset. We should be upset at people who don't tip, to obviously, but we should be more upset at bosses right. who take advantage of this because we as customers are subsidizing their low wages. Right, but um, you know, our individual consumption isn't going to change anything. It, it what's going to change is if we like pass laws or if we get these people to unionize or, or you know if, if we help these people organize and uh, fight for themselves and and stuff like that. So you know it's not going to be. But but anyway, um, all this to say that uh, I was told on Twitter that not tipping could potentially be anti-racist. So what? Yes, yes. So here, here's here's the argument from uh, the from one of the scholars of the 1619 project at the New York Times. Her tweet said, "Tipping is a legacy of slavery, and if it's not optional, then it shouldn't be a tip, but simply included in the bill." Have you ever stopped to think why we tip? Like why tipping is a practice in the U.S. and almost nowhere else. Pause. As a server, yes, I have thought about that. And you should still tip while being upset at all the BS that makes it the way that it is. But that does not absolve you, like a literal millionaire, of not of tipping. That doesn't absolve you of tipping. Like the structure that we live in is bad, yes, but you still have to tip. After slavery... 
forcing black people to work service jobs for tips was a way for white employers not to pay for black labor. This is true and a very important point and a, a good reason that we should get rid of the culture of tipping at, by uh, instituting laws or facilitating unionization, not by just not tipping our service. Um now, waiters remain the employees today who earn less than a minimum wage. The shame for tipping is on the government and employers. True, but not on the customer. False. <laughs> it should be more on the former two, but you should still be shamed if you do not tip. Just like, although being a scab is worse, being a scab is worse than not tipping, obviously. But just because... The shame for creating the conditions of a strike goes towards the government and the boss. That doesn't mean that you can scab. That doesn't mean you can cross the picket line. Like, I'm sorry, Nicole. Apologies doesn't absolve you. So, uh, quote, I tip, and if I don't tip, I leave a note as to why. Ooh-wee. <laughs> But telling black people that we should tip regardless of quality of service when we know we too often do not get high-quality service is asinine to me. Whew. You know, I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt. I really am. I'm trying to give her the benefit of the <laughs> doubt that, like, if, if she's saying that, hey, I go to a restaurant and the folks serving me are you know, bigots, and it's obvious, you, you know, the way they're mistreating me or the way they're being, um, maybe you hear certain things from them. Mm -hmm. okay, okay, I can understand that. I yeah, mean, look, I, mean, I get that totally. There, yeah. Um, there are obvious, like, there's obvious, you know, any rule is going to have exceptions. Right? right. So, so like, so like, let's say for instance, you know, in d during Jim Crow, there were white only unions. Um, am I going to get even like a little bit mad at black people crossing the picket line of a white union during Jim Crow? No, like I'm not, uh, I'm not, if you know, these people, the people in the white union, decided not to extend like purposely as a, as a function of their organization to not extend their solidarity to their black brothers and sisters. And so I, you know, I don't think that they have the expectation that it gets extended to them. Um but you know, so so like look, it, you know, if a if a waiter comes up to 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 a black person and is like, you know, yelling at them like, get out of my restaurant, you N-word. Like, we don't like your kind here. Like, uh, okay, you know, like, I'm not telling you to tip this person, okay? But she said, um, quote, I have been utterly disrespected at restaurants, ignored, rudeness. Nope. Like, I'm sorry, Nicole. <laughs> you don't... <laughs> you. <laughs> Being ignored for a little while or you perceiving something as rude, that's like that's not that's what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. not that's not the exception. Like, right. you know, like, I'm sorry. I'm you know, I have been like things happen and you get ignored sometimes like yeah. I have been ignored. I have had to wait 
like I've been at a restaurant one time where I had to wait a literal hour for my food at a restaurant where like that wasn't the expectation. It was like a fast casual restaurant. I can't remember what it was. Um, but like, like things happen. Things happen. And the person who is responsible for that still deserves to eat. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's a, just a basic level of empathy and try to put yourself in, in the server's shoes, you know, either if you've ever done it, but even if you haven't done it, I mean, you and I both worked in the restaurant industry. It's easy for us to to consider that. Uh, my wife did, too, at one point. So we always tip well because we know what it's like to be servers. We know how stressful it can be. We know that oftentimes whatever issues we may experience as that diner, you know, are as the customer it's likely has very little to do with the server themselves. And even if it does, you know, maybe they're having a bad day or maybe they were not that great at it. I wasn't that great as a server. Uh, just it wasn't my thing. Um, again, yeah, that doesn't mean that they don't deserve to walk out of there with enough to eat, uh, with enough mm-hmm. to pay their rent. And no, it shouldn't be on us customers to have to subsidize that. But, you know, for now, that's what we have. And I... Yeah, it's a little weird to see this argument from her, and I can't help but also reflect on the fact that as a, you know, well-renowned scholar and writer for the New York Times, I'm guessing she's got enough money to tip. And uh, I don't know what your experiences were like in the restaurant industry, but I often found that the ones who were the rudest to us as servers, the ones who had the crappiest tips, were often the ones who you you know, pulled up in the parking lot in a Mercedes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people that clearly are, are people who gave off the impression, a clear impression that they had the money, that they were financially comfortable, uh, but for their own reasons decided to tip you poorly or not tip you at all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> I, I'm just going to say it, the Sunday church crowd yeah. Had the worst tips. Oh, yeah. um, absolutely. I guess they gave it all to church. Yeah. <laughs> so I, they would show up and be rude as hell uh, to mm-hmm. to all the low-wage workers. It hustling really to bring is, their biscuits. I mean, it really is astounding. I looked up her net worth. She has a net worth of like $3 million. And she's like a pretty young person. Like, can you – I mean, can you imagine – like, I would – like the only scenario that I can think of that I would not that I would be like not tipping would be something equivalent to like, you know, it, it would the, have to be extremely extreme, egregious, like actual literal aggression. Right. And, or, or like harassment. Bad enough to where like I would feel the need to leave yeah. the, the property uh, yeah. to get out of that. I mean, if it was on that level, then sure. But otherwise, right. you know. Just I, not, I would say it doesn't even look like that's what she like. You, you need being a, ignored or right. so, perceiving something as rude. I mean, get a like, get a break. Yeah, like, I see. That's that's right. what I where I thought she was going with this is you know, hey, yeah. I've experienced racism at restaurants and I shouldn't be expected to tip those people. Um, that's that is totally understandable. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. not where she took it. I, nope. I don't know why even why even go there. Or is this just a way to get? Twitter engagement or something. I, can't I don't know. Remember what the thing that started? I don't think she wasn't. She was like replying in a thread. Um, she was like replying to somebody. She was engaging in a conversation that was already going on. Oh, okay. I mean, it's just she didn't just. So, I mean, I guess to be fair, she didn't just tweet out 
uh, not tipping is anti-racist. <laughs> yeah, it's still still bizarre. Still bizarre. Yeah. Uh, so that's it for today's episode of the Valley Labor Report, folks. We appreciate your time. If you would like to help us stay on the air, you can buy our new hat. Uh, make a one-time donation or a recurring donation at tvlr.fm. Share and follow on social media. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, share your thoughts on the contents of today's episode. Ask us a question. Share a story about uh, winning in your workplace, about a bad boss, anything at all. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Solidarity to the Minneapolis educators, the Alabama coal miners, and all other workers currently on strike. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we will see you next week.